Hey guys, and welcome to the Moms and Murder Podcast, a true crime podcast featuring myself, Mandy, and my dear friend, Melissa. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Mandy. How are you? I am doing all right. How are you? I think that's a good word. I'm doing all right as well. Yeah. Not like Matthew McConaughey, all right, all right, all right. Yeah. Just one all right. <laughs> just just the one. Yeah. Just the one. Yeah. <laughs> that's really the only way I can describe it. It's not absolutely terrible, but I mean, it could yeah. always be worse and it could yeah. certainly be better as well. But yeah, <laughs> it's another week and we are back with a new episode. So that's exciting. That is. I'm very excited. Yeah. So uh, just one quick little announcement. If you were looking forward to seeing us at CrimeCon in Orlando in May, that has unfortunately been postponed. So they do have a new date they announced um, this past week, and they are moving it to October 30th through November 1st. And it's still going to be here in Orlando at the same place that it was before. Uh, But you can check out CrimeCon's you know, website and social media to get more information on that. Or if you've already bought tickets, they probably have already emailed you. Um, We just wanted to kind of make sure everybody knew um, that that had gotten postponed. So maybe if you couldn't make it in May, but now you can make it because it's at a different time. You can probably look into that. Um, So yeah, other than that, I don't think we have anything really crazy to announce. Everybody knows what's going on everywhere because all of us are, you know, on social media right now. So we all kind of know everything that's going on other than that. So I guess we can just get right into the episode this week. Sounds good. So the story this week is one of those where I just really didn't even have a clue where to begin because there's so much going on and there's a lot of people involved and everybody is kind of entangled in this really complex web of emotion. It's really common in true crime stories to hear of love triangles or affair situations at the heart of a crime, but this week's episode is about a love quadrangle, or as Haley, who researched this episode, put it, a love square, which I just like that term. I think love square is easier on the tongue than love quadrangle. So I'm fine with that. Oh, I'm never saying quadrangle after this moment. (laughs) So the story this week takes place in Easton, Pennsylvania. And before we get into it, we're going to tell you a little about Easton in this week's segment of We Googled This City. So Easton is located in eastern Pennsylvania and as of the 2010 census had a population of around 26,000 residents. During the French and Indian Wars, Easton was a place where there were many Indian peace councils. On July 8, 1776, just four days after it was signed, the Declaration of Independence was read on the steps of what is now known as the Great Square. The novelist of Little Women and several other books, Louisa May Alcott, was born in Germantown, which is now a part of Philadelphia. Tara Lipinski, who was the youngest in history to win the gold medal in women's figure skating in the 1998 Olympics, was just 15 years old at the time, and she hails from Philadelphia as well. So if you can tell I'm talking about Philadelphia and other parts of Pennsylvania, because Easton, gotta be honest, when you Google Easton fun facts, there's really nothing. I got to one page, and I'm sure it's a lovely place, but I got to one place, and the fun facts are just what I've read, basically. And then you click on it and it brings you to a plumbing page. (laughs) So it's just (laughs) somebody was like, oh, I know SEO and know some search results. And this is how I'm going to get you to my plumbing (laughs) place. So good for you. But overall, it wasn't very helpful for me. And I want to be honest, but I really was looking for a way to tie this all into the new documentary Tiger King on Netflix because I am super obsessed with it. But I can't because none of the documentary takes place in Pennsylvania. But, Mandy, it does take place in Oklahoma, Florida, and South Carolina. (laughs) And, like Pennsylvania, those are states. So this is what I'm going (laughs) with. (laughs) 
I, it was like a struggle bus week for me. So if you're looking for something to watch on Netflix, oh my gosh, please start this. Mandy and I just talked earlier, and we are going to recap it at the end of next week uh, for Lasting Before We Go, kind of like we did for Love is Blind. Love is Blind? Yeah. yeah. It's been so long now. <laughs> We're on to new things <laughs> now. <laughs> this is a new thing. So if you're not familiar with Tiger King, Netflix's hottest documentary has everything. It has residents you think may be from Florida but are actually from Oklahoma, droopy eyebrow rings, Tattoos of bullet holes, polygamous wedding blankets, funerals where one person spends a lot of time talking about testicles. Two words for you, Mandy, meat truck. And two more words for you, Carol Baskin. And lastly, (laughs) all you cool cats and kittens, there is a lot of talk about a husband who may have been fed to tigers. So please, if you haven't watched it yet, watch it. And then next week when we recap a little bit of it, you'll be caught up and you can enjoy the oh my gosh, what's going on every (laughs) single other minute the whole time. So I'm sorry that wasn't a lot about Pennsylvania, but I had to get that out there. Go ahead, Mandy. Just continue. I don't know what I'm doing anymore. (laughs) So since this story is so complicated and involves several people, we're going to start by talking about the woman that is really at the center of this ongoing feud between the two women that she was romantically involved with. Her name was Devin Guzman. Devin was born on June 9, 1981, in Phillipsburg, New Jersey, to parents Melody and Ricardo. Devin's parents also had a son named Derek, and Devin had a very close relationship with her little brother. Melody and Ricardo divorced in 1993 when Devin was 12 years old, and she and her brother lived with their mom but continued to see their father frequently. Two years after the divorce, Ricardo wanted a change of scenery, and he moved to Phoenix, Arizona. At that time, Devin and her brother Derek decided to move away with their dad, and they stayed there for the next four years before moving back east to Pennsylvania. Devin's personality was sweet and friendly, and she always put her friends and family before herself. She was full of energy and always on the go, and she always had encouraging words and hugs for anybody who needed them. As a teenager, Devin was close with two girls named Michelle and Kiri. These two girls disliked each other, but both of them really loved Devin. All three of the girls eventually dropped out of high school, and Devin started working as a cleaning technician for ServPro, which you may have heard of. It's a company that does restorations after things like flooding or fires or mold. I think they're nationwide. Oh, they are. I definitely had them in my house when I accidentally flooded my bathroom a few years ago. (laughs) Yeah, I think we did an episode a long time ago where somebody else in the story worked for serve pro as well so i think we may have talked about it then too i'm sure at some point devon told her parents that she was interested in women both of her parents were supportive and they really just wanted the best for their daughter and they wanted her to be happy devon began an on again off again relationship with michelle hetzel who was one of her really good friends from high school that i mentioned before Devin and michelle had been friends in grade school but they actually lost touch when devon moved to arizona with her father They reconnected later when Devin returned to Pennsylvania in high school. Although the girls considered themselves to be really close, many people actually described more of a love-hate relationship between the two of them. They argued and bickered constantly, and their relationship was really just nonstop drama. The two girls would be happy one minute, fighting the next, and back to being happy again in the blink of an eye. We all have Facebook friends like this. Right. (laughs) You see this a lot. Michelle was the youngest in her family after her parents welcomed her into the world 10 years after they had the child before her. Her father said that she was really spoiled and that she always got what she wanted and that they bought her cars and clothes and money was really no object when it came to making Michelle happy. 
Michelle dropped out of high school in the 11th grade, just like Devin, and went to work at an oncologist's office doing clerical work. At some point when Michelle was a minor, she had been placed in temporary foster care, but the reason for this is not publicly known. While she was in foster care, she stayed with the Bloss family and met Brandon Bloss. Brandon was seven years older than Michelle, but they really hit it off. Brandon was an ambitious guy who studied at the University of Pittsburgh for a year and a half before attending Allentown College of St. Francis de Sales on an academic scholarship. So he graduated with a bachelor's in chemistry and math in 1996, and he had a year and a half's worth of credits towards a degree in chemical engineering. He worked as a chemist at Ashland Chemical Company by day, and he was a bartender at night. Although Brandon's family did not approve of his relationship with Michelle, the two got married on February 6, 2000. Those who knew Michelle speculated that she may have only really married Brandon to keep up appearances and to make her parents happy, even though she was struggling with her sexuality at the time. When the couple got married, Brandon knew about Michelle's relationship with Devin, but after the wedding, he began getting mad about the amount of time and money that Michelle was spending with her. Brandon wanted Michelle to completely cut off the relationship with Devin and to focus on just being his wife. Although the women were upset that Brandon was starting to get in the way of their relationship, it gave Devin time to focus on her other relationship. As we mentioned in the beginning, Michelle wasn't the only woman that Devin was romantically involved with. She also had another girlfriend named Kiri. Kiri and Michelle knew each other and knew that Devin was seeing them both. They were actually friends at one point, but when Devin came back from Arizona and developed a personal relationship with each of them separately, it kind of drove a wedge between their own friendship. Yeah, I could see how that would happen. Yeah. So at the time of this story, the two women, Kiri and Michelle, really did not particularly like each other, so everyone just kind of stayed out of each other's way. Kiri was 19 years old, and her relationship with Devin was already pretty serious. They had gotten engaged and had plans to get married in the summer of 2000. But their relationship wasn't exactly sunshine and rainbows all the time either. Just like Devin and Michelle had frequent bouts of bickering and fighting, so did Devin and Kiri. Their relationship was sometimes hostile and included plenty of verbal arguments and even physical confrontations at times. It was just really a normal part of their relationship to get mad and then to shove and slap each other and then make up and just continue on as normal. Devin and Kiri moved in together in October of 1999, unbeknownst to Kiri's husband. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, so if you thought things couldn't be any more confusing, we're going to throw another person in the mix because Kiri was also married to a man that had gone off to boot camp and therefore he was not physically in the picture while all of the events of this story were going on. So a quick recap of everybody involved. We have Devin, who, as I said, is really at the center of everything, and she's romantically involved with Michelle and Kiri, who are both married to different men. So all of these people have you know, relationships that are kind of intertwined, and then they have relationships that are separate. And all of it is very complex and very complicated. Devin and her fiance, Kiri, lived in the Mineral Springs Hotel in Forks Township. They paid a monthly lease instead of a nightly rate there. The hotel had 11 apartments, six boarding rooms, and a bar and grill. Here's a little fun fact about the Mineral Springs Hotel. It was actually destroyed in October of 2013. A woman named Fallon Craig got into an argument with her boyfriend, Charles Unix Jr., while in a room. So Fallon started throwing things at Charles, and he decided to leave. Fallon then lit a cigarette into a couch, then lit a blanket on fire. 
The fire department wasn't able to stop the fire before it actually took over, and five people were injured in the fire, and a 66-year-old resident died from burns and smoke inhalation. Fallon later pled guilty to involuntary manslaughter and arson. At some point, while Devin and Kiri were living here and living together, Devin started seeing Michelle again in secret. She had to sneak around to meet up with Michelle so Kiri wouldn't find out. They actually had this really elaborate method of meeting up where Michelle would go to Devin's father's house and ask him to call Devin to come over. Devin and Michelle were, of course, sneaking around behind Michelle's husband Brandon's back as well. There is a lot of sneaking, and I can't even imagine how you keep all of this up. Like, yeah, this is, it seems very I don't like, busy. Yeah, very, <laughs> very busy is the right word, yes. So as one would imagine, this situation was extremely unstable. Everyone's emotions were constantly running high, and there were verbal and physical arguments between the parties involved. Tensions escalated over Memorial Day weekend in 2000 when Devin and Michelle took off on a vacation to Puerto Rico and St. Croix without telling Kiri and Brandon what they were really doing. And we're going to get right into what happened on this vacation after taking a quick break for a word from this week's sponsors. These days, I'm doing a lot of online shopping, like a lot, a lot. You get the idea. But do you know what could make the convenience of online shopping even better? Saving money. And you can do that now with Honey. Honey is the free online shopping tool that actually helps you save money online. Gone are the days of opening up new browser windows to search for codes and then copying and pasting them only to find out the coupon is expired or is for something completely different than what you're ordering. Honey automatically finds the best promo codes and applies them to your cart. So online shopping is not only fun, but it's easy too. So just imagine you're shopping one of your favorite sites like Target or Etsy, and when you go to checkout, there's a little box that drops down and you just need to click apply coupons. Then just wait a few seconds for what I assume is the Honey Fairy to scan for every promo code on the internet. That's it. I used Honey a few nights ago to order some school supplies and actually got a 10% off coupon I didn't even know existed. And I was, of course, thrilled because it covered the shipping on the supplies, which we all know is the worst part of online shopping. We love Honey, and we know you will too. And we're not alone. Honey has over 100,000 plus five-star reviews on the Google Chrome store. Not using Honey is literally passing up free money. It's free to use and installs in just a few seconds. Plus, it's backed by PayPal, so you know it's good. Get Honey for free at joinhoney.com slash moms. That's joinhoney.com slash moms. This past week, a lot of us have found ourselves in our homes a whole lot more. And with that comes a lot of Netflix and extra snacks, but it's really important for our body and our minds to keep moving. And that's what OpenFit strives to help you do, all from the comfort of your own home. If you're looking for big results or just want to increase your energy, put a pep in your step or overall just feel better inside. OpenFit is the fitness streaming service you've been looking for. I'm super obsessed with the 10-minute classes hosted by Devin Wiggins. It's fast-paced, but it's only 10 minutes, so I feel like I can really push myself hard for that amount of time. Every Monday, OpenFit has a three-week live challenge, which gives you a different live workout every day for three weeks, and I'm super excited to join in on the next one. With the live challenge, I can actually connect with a trainer or classmates while using OpenFit's live chat tool. OpenFit has changed the way I work out, and texting our code MOMS to 505050, you can join me on a fitness journey personalized just for you. Right now, during the OpenFit 14-day challenge, our listeners get a special extended 14-day free trial membership to OpenFit. When you text MOMS to 505050, 
you will get full access to OpenFit, all the workouts and nutrition information, totally free. Again, just text MOMS to 505050. Standard message and data rates may apply. Now back to the episode. Before the break, Devin Guzman had just taken off on a trip with one of her girlfriends, Michelle Hetzel. Devin's fiance, Kiri, and Michelle's husband, Brandon, were not aware that the two women had gone on this romantic getaway to Puerto Rico and St. Croix, but that's exactly what they did. Michelle funded the entire trip with credit cards, and while they were there, Michelle actually purchased a total of three different rings. Two of them were identical, and they were for herself and for Devin as matching rings, and then she also bought another diamond ring just for Devin. In their minds, this was a major event for them. They planned to leave Kiri and Brandon when they returned to the States so that they could just be with each other. They even called Devin's father while they were in Puerto Rico and asked if they could live with him when they got back, and he said yes. At some point during the trip, Devin called Kiri and told her that she was on this vacation with Michelle, and Kiri was really upset by this, and she immediately called Brandon to let him know what was going on. He was also blindsided, and he had no idea that Michelle was even with Devin. He thought that she was in San Francisco. Brandon was so upset that Michelle had lied to him that he contacted a divorce attorney. When Devin and Michelle returned from the trip, Devin told Kiri that she wanted to end their relationship because she had married Michelle and they were going to be together. From there, a very heated altercation took place between Devin and Kiri that ended in Devin having her hand sliced open with a knife that Kiri was holding during this fight. So just... A reminder, these kinds of violent fights and outbursts were really pretty commonplace for Devin and her girlfriend. So this is just like a typical, we're having an argument, one of us happens to be holding a knife and somebody got cut with it kind of situation. So Kiri claimed that she was going to use the knife to stab herself during this argument, but then Devin tried to stop her and her hand got cut in the process and Devin went to the emergency room for this. So it's all documented, but who knows if that's really, you know, exactly how it went down. So despite this violent argument, Devin did not move out of the place that she shared with Kiri, like she told Michelle that she was going to do. Days later, on June 14, 2000, the complexity of this love square came to a boiling point. That evening, Devin and Michelle were at Devin's father's house, where they commonly met to hang out in secret. Devin's dad, his girlfriend, and his sister were all at the house, and everyone was drinking alcohol and having a good time. As per usual, Devin and Michelle began arguing at some point in the night. The fight seemed to stem from anger on Michelle's part over the fact that Devin still hadn't moved out of Curie's place. The argument got really heated and Michelle and Devin both left in their own cars. Devin drove to her apartment where she lived with Curie and told her about the fight that she had just had with Michelle. She said that she and Michelle had broken up and that she gave her the rings back and that it was over. But then Devin and Kiri started arguing about Michelle, and things got pretty ugly and violent. Devin allegedly hit Kiri over the back of the head with a vodka bottle, and then the two women started slapping each other. The patrons that were at the bar underneath their apartment could even hear the scuffle going on above them. In the middle of this fight between Devin and Kiri, Devin was receiving page after page from Michelle's home phone number, because pagers were still a thing in 2000, although I don't think they were. I think they were on their way out. Maybe. Were we still paging people? I don't know. Well, I feel like 
Yeah, I guess 2000. 2000 seems late for pagers, but I guess I just don't know how time works because that was so, definitely 20 years ago. <laughs> I started working for a doctor in 2004, 2005, and he used to use a pager at the hospital. But even then, it was kind of like, mm, even for a doctor, it was kind of late. So I feel like this was at the end of paging. After this, it would have just been text messaging. But this, I think 2000 might have been where it all kind of ended. We all broke up with our pagers then. So Devin eventually managed to break away for a moment and called Michelle's house. Brandon answered the phone and spoke with her while Michelle screamed in the background. When Devin hung up the phone, she told Kiri that Michelle was sick and that she needed her and that she was going to go over there. Kiri insisted on going along with Devin to Michelle and Brandon's house. So Kiri is bringing her girlfriend to her other girlfriend and her husband's house. Right. Clear as mud. It's, <laughs> it's a lot going on in this story. So when they arrived, Kiri sat in the car while Devin went up to the door. Brandon answered the door, and upon seeing Kiri in the driveway, he told Devin that she needed to get Kiri out of there and that she was not welcome at his house. So Devin drove Kiri back home and dropped her off at around 11.30 p.m. that night. She told Kiri that she was going to go back to Michelle and Brandon's and that there was really nothing to worry about. That would be the last time that Kiri saw or spoke to Devin. At around 12.45 a.m., Kiri's phone rang, and when she answered, it was Michelle on the other end, and she was calling to say that Devin never made it back to their house. At 2.30 a.m., Michelle and Brandon actually drove over to Kiri's apartment, and the three of them talked about where Devin could possibly be. Michelle tried to get Kiri to call the police to report Devin missing, but Kiri wasn't quite so quick to take action on this. She said that Devin had left before and she always came home and she didn't feel like there was any kind of emergency or reason to raise the alarm. This, of course, had been a particularly stressful and hostile night, starting with the fight that Devin and Michelle had. And then Devin went home and had a fight with Kiri. And then there was all this back and forth taking place, you know, going over to people's houses and taking people back home. There was a lot that went on that night. So it didn't seem that unusual to Kiri that Devin would have maybe just gone somewhere to clear her head. Michelle wasn't really happy with Kiri's decision not to call the police. So she decided to call the Forks Township Police herself and report Devin missing. Officers responded and took a report from Michelle, and then Michelle and Kiri contacted Devin's family and friends to let them know that she was missing and that they were looking for her. Over the next several hours, Michelle called police numerous times looking for updates, but by 6.30 that morning, she was exhausted and she went home to rest while Brandon went off to work for the day. Later that morning, Michelle returned to Kiri's apartment with food and suggested that they take a drive around Easton and just look for Devin's car. Michelle suggested they check around Canal Park because that's somewhere that she and Devin would go together, so maybe Devin, you know, would have gone there. Sure enough, they pulled into the parking lot of what used to be the Canal Museum and spotted Devin's car parked there. Upon seeing Devin's car, Michelle blurted out, quote, I could kill her. She pretty much insinuated that this was just typical behavior for Devin and that she had just been out drinking and passed out in her car somewhere. Michelle said, this is the last time she's going to do this to me. Michelle and Kiri approached Devin's car and Michelle urged Kiri to look inside. At first, Kiri said that she didn't see Devin in the car, but Michelle told her to look again. That's when Kiri saw Devin lying across the back seat, covered up by a green jacket. Kiri thought maybe Devin was asleep, but when she noticed that her eyebrows and lips were purple, she knew something was wrong and started screaming for Michelle to call for help. 
An employee nearby heard the crying and screaming and told the woman not to touch Devin's body. And the employee then called the police. Coroner Zachary Lysak arrived on the scene at 1.13 p.m. and observed Devin's condition. He believed that she had been dead for up to 12 hours before he arrived. He also observed a laceration to Devin's neck, but there wasn't nearly enough blood inside the car considering the injuries that she had. So this injury that she had would mean that there would be blood splatter and just blood everywhere, and there was actually very little blood that was found in the car. The coroner also noted that the back of Devin's pants had dirt and grass stains on them, but there was no dirt on the back of her shirt. There were other strange pieces of evidence found in the car with Devin's body that investigators were quickly able to determine were staged as a means of throwing them off this investigation. They found a syringe in the car with an unidentified clear liquid inside, but it was not believed that the syringe had anything to do with Devin's death. There was also a kitchen knife that was found in Devin's hand that was also determined to have nothing to do with how she died. Investigators believe that based on the evidence from the crime scene, Devin had been murdered at another location and then placed in her car after she was already dead, and whoever had killed her tried to make it look like a suicide instead of a murder. Of course, it was a very amateur attempt, and police knew right away that this was fishy. Devin's body was sent to Dr. Sarah Funk for an autopsy. Her body had several bruises and scratches, which indicated that she tried to fight off her attacker. The cut to Devin's throat was so deep that it nearly went all the way to her spine. It severed Devin's tongue and cut her right carotid artery and right jugular vein. Her cause of death was determined to be from the neck wound and asphyxiation. A funeral for Devin was held on June 21, 2000, at Ashton Funeral Home in Easton. Later on in the day after Devin's body had been discovered, police interviewed Kiri, Michelle, and Brandon. Kiri told investigators her version, including that she and Devin had a fight the night she was killed, but she insisted that she was not responsible for Devin's murder. She told police about the events of the night and how Devin had left, supposedly to go back to Michelle and Brandon's house. When the police questioned Michelle, her story was slightly different. She said that she had been hanging out with Devin at her father's house and they drank alcohol, which made her start feeling sick. She said they left at around 9 p.m. And when Michelle got home, Brandon called Devin to say that Michelle wasn't feeling well and asked her to come over. She also told the police that Devin showed up at her house with Kiri in the car and that Brandon asked Kiri to leave. When the police asked Michelle how she knew Devin and Kiri, she told them that she had been in a relationship with Devin, but it was two years ago, and that they only hung out together, never anything beyond that. She said that she had been friends with Kiri for years until Devin came back from Arizona and drove this rift between them. When Brandon gave his interview to the police, he said that his wife Michelle had come home at around 10 p.m. on June 14th and that she was drunk, but she refused to explain where she had been or why she was drunk. Brandon knew that Devin liked to party with Michelle, so he called her and asked her to come over to figure out exactly what was going on. When she showed up with Kiri, he asked her to take Kiri home and to come back. According to Brandon, this was the last time he and Michelle saw Devin alive. He said that she never did come back and that he went to bed at 11 p.m. He was woken up by Michelle at 2 a.m. when she asked if he would drive her to Curie's to check on Devin. He claimed that he drove Michelle over to Curie's, but that he stayed in the car and actually fell asleep while Michelle went inside. He was once again woken up by Michelle around 3.30 in the morning when she and Curie had reported Devin missing. A couple hours later, Brandon said that he and Michelle went home so they could sleep a little before he went to work. 
The stories that Kiri, Michelle, and Brandon told were very similar, except that Kiri claimed that Brandon and Michelle were the last to see Devin alive, and Brandon and Michelle said that it was Kiri who was the last one to see Devin alive. Police still had more investigative work to do to piece together what happened to Devin Guzman and figure out who was responsible for her murder. Kiri was actually at the top of their list as far as suspects go, and Devin's own family thought that Kiri was likely the one responsible. Everyone knew about the hostile relationship the two women had with each other and about their physically violent arguments. It didn't help that Kiri had already admitted that she and Devin had a pretty serious fight the night she was murdered. Kiri definitely had the motive and the ability to end Devin's life that night, but as we sometimes see in true crime cases, things weren't quite as they appeared in this case. One thing that didn't fit with the theory that Kiri had been the one to murder Devin was that Kiri didn't have a car on her own and she would have no way of moving Devin's body to the parking lot where it was found. She wouldn't have had time to do that, walk home, and then be there in time for Michelle's phone call at around 12.45 when she called to say that Devin never made it. This detail left Brandon and Michelle as the prime suspects. And we're going to get into the other side of the story and what investigators were able to determine through the evidence after one last break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. Finding the perfect bra is kind of like finding the pot of gold at the end of a rainbow. You chase a lot of rainbows before you find it which is why we want to save you the time of chasing rainbows and introduce you to Third Love. I know buying a bra online seems a little crazy, but Third Love bras are different because they are designed to fit you, not the other way around. Third Love actually has a Fit Finder quiz where you answer a few questions, including some about the bra you already own and wear, to find your perfect fit in just 60 seconds. I took the quiz, which was super quick and easy, and found out that the bra I was wearing was about half a cup too big. Yes, that's right. Third Love has half cup sizes. I mean, shoes have half sizes, so why wouldn't bras? But if you're worried about buying the wrong size, even after you take this quiz, don't sweat it. Third Love has the perfect fit promise. Every customer has 60 days to wear it, wash it, and put it to the test. And if you don't love it, return it and Third Love will wash it and donate it to a woman in need. Not only that, but if for some reason it doesn't fit or you don't like it, returns and exchanges are free and easy. I'm sure you'll love your bra just as much as I love mine because Third Love bras are hands down the most comfortable bra I've ever owned. There's not even a close second, really. It's comfortable, cute, and has straps that won't slip and tagless labels so there's no itching in that one spot on your back that you can't even reach. Third Love knows there's a perfect bra for everyone. So right now they are offering our listeners 15% off your first order. Go to thirdlove.com slash murder now to find your perfect fitting bra and get 15% off your first purchase. That's thirdlove.com slash murder for 15% off today. We shop for groceries, shoes, and even bras online. So why not add all natural home, beauty, and personal care products to the growing list of things that can be delivered right to your door? Grove Collaborative is here to save the day and do just that for you. Plus, Grove takes the guesswork out of going green. I prefer to use less chemically smelling stuff around my family. But honestly, I don't know what to choose, which is why I'm glad that every Grove.co product is guaranteed to be good, not only for you, but for your family, your home, and for the planet. So you can save time reading confusing labels where you need a PhD in PhDs to even understand. And with Grove, you don't have to shop at multiple stores or search all over the internet to find all the natural goods that you need for you and your family. It's all conveniently located on the easy-to-use Grove.co website. You can join over 2 million households who have trusted Grove Collaborative to make their homes both happier and healthier. Households just like ours. I recently ordered several things, including the Mrs. Myers Multi-Surface Cleaner, 
Not only does it clean great, it actually smells wonderful and not like a bottle of bleach just exploded everywhere. There's also Grove Collaborative Clear the Air Toilet Spray that I got on my last order, and it does exactly what it claims to do. And your nose will thank you for putting this one in your bathroom. Plus, I love that with Grove, shipping is fast and free on your first order. For a limited time, when our listeners go to grove.co slash mm, you will get a free five-piece cleaning set from Mrs. Myers and Grove in crisp scents like mint or rose, a $30 value. Go to grove.co slash mm to get this exclusive spring cleaning offer. Grove.co slash mm. Now back to the episode. Back at the crime scene, Devin's body and car were thoroughly searched for evidence. Devin's fiance Curie had been the number one suspect in her murder, but the evidence police found suggested that someone else had murdered the young woman. Investigators collected hair from Devin's car that was found to belong to both Brandon and Michelle. Some of Michelle's hair was actually found on Devin's jacket. They also found animal hairs, and because Michelle and Brandon had several pets, it was assumed that the animal hairs came from their house. They also found Devin's pager under the waistband of her pants. The hair evidence that police retrieved from Devin's car prompted police to dig deeper into Michelle and Brandon. They pulled the phone records from their house and learned that there were numerous repeated calls made to Devin's pager on the night of the murder, but suspiciously, all of those incoming calls were erased from Devin's pager. On June 15th, Michelle's car and the house she shared with Brandon were also searched. In a stroke of luck for the police, they already had her vehicle in possession because when Michelle pulled up to the crime scene the day before, she actually pulled her car so close to Devin's car that the police impounded it as part of the crime scene. So they didn't need any additional warrants or anything to search through the car because they already had it. Oh, wow. Yeah. Police found two pairs of rubber gloves, Brandon's t-shirt and jeans, which both had blood on them that was later determined to be Devin's blood. Brandon's sweatshirt, socks, and sneakers, and these items all had traces of blood evidence, but not enough to actually test and match to anybody. Inside Michelle and Brandon's house, they found a washing machine full of soapy water and one single pair of Michelle's jeans soaking in it. The water was tested for traces of blood, and a presumptive test came back positive, but a lab test couldn't be conducted because the sample was really just too weak and watered down. Inside the pocket of the jeans that were in the washing machine was a syringe cap. And this, of course, was a very important clue for police because of the syringe with the mystery liquid that was found with Devin's body. It was confirmed that the cap found in Michelle's jeans was a match to the syringe found in Devin's car. Police continued to search the home and found more suspicious items. In the trash outside, police discovered multiple used bandages with what appeared to be a bite mark pattern on them. It would be several weeks before that particular evidence was further investigated. In the meantime, Michelle and Brandon were continuing to live life as usual. In the weeks following Devin's murder, Michelle claimed to be pregnant with Brandon's twins, but that actually turned out to be false. On July 1st, Michelle and Brandon went on a vacation to Cancun. But the investigation continued and police eventually interviewed more than 50 people on the search for Devin's killer. And they learned some interesting facts. An employee that worked nearby where Devin's car was parked told the police that he had seen a silver car parked at the former Canal Museum at around 3 a.m., but he didn't think twice about it because it was common for fishermen to park there overnight. This information told the police that Devin was killed between 11.30 p.m. and 3 o'clock in the morning. 
A neighbor of Michelle and Brandon told investigators that the couple argued often and that he did recall there being a fight on the night of June 14th, and he personally witnessed the couple outside of their home yelling at around midnight. He actually saw Devin leave Michelle and Brandon's house to take Kiri home. Several friends and family members of Michelle and Brandon were interviewed and gave incriminating testimony to the police. A friend of the couple named George Vine said that Michelle once offered him sex or money to get rid of Devin, and this was two to three months prior to her actually being murdered. Oh, wow. Another friend told police that Michelle mentioned wanting Devin dead in February of that year. So once again, this is several months before she was actually killed. Finally, police found out through a woman who had dated one of Brandon's sisters named Kara Judd that Michelle allegedly admitted to actually killing Devin. She said that Michelle came over to her house after they had returned from this trip in Cancun, and Michelle seemed like something was bothering her. And she eventually opened up and told Kara that she missed Devin, and she was angry with Devin for bringing Kiri over to her house that night. And Michelle explained to Kara that when Devin returned to their house after dropping Kiri off, they, uh, Devin and Michelle, started fighting, and then Brandon tried to break it up, and Devin bit his arm. Michelle alleged that she then grabbed a knife and the next thing she knew, there was blood everywhere. She said that she and Brandon moved Devin's body to her car and then Michelle soaked her jeans in the washer while Brandon hosed down the garage. So those are all very specific things that the police have really already, you know, for someone to be saying that this is what this person said and police actually have found evidence that really backs up exactly what this, you know, what this woman has said. Right. So once police had obtained all of this hearsay and circumstantial evidence, they wanted to find something more solid that would actually tie Michelle and Brandon to the murder. It had been several weeks since police found those old bandages in the trash that appeared to have a bite mark pattern on them. But police asked a forensic odontologist, Dr. Azen, to look at them and determine whether they showed a human bite mark or not. The doctor concluded that the marks were consistent with a human bite, and police were then able to obtain a warrant to photograph Brandon. They found that he had a bite mark on his left forearm, but when police asked Dr. Azen to examine the photographs, he realized that he had already seen this wound. As it turned out, Brandon's lawyer had already asked Dr. Azen to take photos of the bite mark and make tracings from it. A second forensic odontologist, Dr. Scanlon, confirmed that the bandages had been placed over a human bite wound. From there, police took dental impressions from Brandon, Michelle, and Curie and they asked Devin's family if they could exhume her body and take her dental impressions as well. Her family agreed. After comparing the dental impressions to the bite pattern on Brandon's wound, Dr. Scanlon found that, quote, within a reasonable degree of dental certainty that the bite pattern of Devin was the most consistent, end quote, of all the impressions. So basically, layman's terms, the bite that they found, the the pattern was more than likely Devin's. Out of all the ones, that would be the most likely that it would be Devin's bite mark. On August 13, 2000, Michelle and Brandon were both arrested at their house and charged with murder and two counts of conspiracy to commit murder. They were tried together, although Michelle tried to have their trials separated and actually failed. Joint trials can happen when the charges against each defendant are based on the same evidence or the defendants participated in the same act. Jury selection began on September 10, 2001 in Northampton County, and opening statements began on September 11th. Last week, we talked about another case that happened on September 11th. Shortly after opening statements in the trial, all state buildings were evacuated due to the 9-11 terrorist attacks. On September 12th, the judge in this case declared a mistrial, 
stating that the jurors would not be able to focus on the testimony and that some witnesses were now unavailable to testify because they were helping at the attack sites. A second jury was chosen just 12 days later, and opening statements began on September 25, 2001. The jury consisted of seven women and five men. The prosecution alleged that both Brandon and Michelle were equally responsible for Devin's murder. Michelle had a tumultuous love-hate relationship going on with Devin, and Brandon was fed up with Devin for interfering in his marriage. The prosecution also alleged that Brandon helped Michelle lure Devin to their home with the intention of killing her, and once they had done it, they placed Devin's body in her car and parked it at the former Canal Park Museum. They backed up their theory with evidence and testimony from several witnesses. Although they were on trial together, Michelle and Brandon did have their own defense teams. Michelle's defense team asserted the theory that Brandon was solely responsible for the murder because he was fed up with Michelle's relationship with Devin. They said that Michelle loved Devin and would have never hurt her. Michelle testified on her own behalf and really threw her husband under the bus, stating that she wasn't involved in Devin's murder, but she believed Brandon was the one to do it. For Brandon's defense, his team claimed that it was Michelle who had used the knife to cut Devin's throat, but that Brandon wasn't there for the actual murder because that it took place at the time when he went inside to tend to his bite wound. That's so actually defense, a pretty um, good defense. Yeah, it actually even, is a pretty good defense. Kind of I agree. Sense, yeah. yeah. So his defense alleged that he went back into the garage and saw that Michelle had killed Devin, and then he is guilty of helping her cover it up. His defense presented no evidence, and he did not testify. So the jury was given options for what to do. They could impose one of four different verdicts on one or both of the defendants, and their choices were to, of course, acquit them. They could be convicted of first-degree murder, third-degree murder, or voluntary manslaughter. After eight hours deliberating, the jury found both Michelle and Brandon guilty of first-degree murder. They were acquitted on the conspiracy to commit murder charges. Right after being convicted, Michelle and Brandon were both sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Both have tried to appeal their conviction more than once. They both tried to claim insufficient evidence to reach a guilty verdict, and those grounds were obviously denied. Brandon later appealed on the grounds that police shouldn't have been able to use the bite mark photos and tracings from Dr. Azen because they had been done for his attorney and there was attorney-client privilege. The judge did rule in his favor and agree that it was an improper admission of evidence, but that it didn't change the outcome of the trial, and there was plenty of other evidence proving Brandon's guilt. Michelle tried to appeal on the grounds that there should have been separate trials, but she lost that appeal in March of 2003. In another desperate attempt, Michelle appealed again on the grounds that she was too young at the time the crime was committed to be sentenced to life. That was also denied because the law states that killers 17 years old or younger couldn't receive life. Michelle was 18 at the time, so this law did not apply to her. Michelle and Brandon have never confessed to the murder, so it's unknown exactly where Devin was killed. Michelle and Brandon are serving their time in different prisons in Pennsylvania. So this story was really interesting because there are so many people involved in it, and it's just all the relationships and the dynamics and stuff, and the fact that there could be multiple people that could have been involved, you know, in the in the murder. It's amazing, you know, the police had so much evidence, luckily, that could definitively point to one person because... In this kind of situation, I could see where somebody could go on trial and maybe not have been responsible. Kiri could have very easily been arrested for this. She had the motive. She had the means, you know, minus having the car and everything. 
it's easy to see why they would have seen her as a suspect early on. Oh, for sure. Especially because they were, you said, living together and they were engaged with each other and fighting. She admitted that they had a fight that was very serious that night. And there was um, some information in the research that I didn't put in the episode, but when uh, they were fighting that night, the patrons at this bar that were downstairs, like I think we did put in there that, you know, they thought it was loud, but the manager of the bar actually went and knocked on the door and was like, you guys need to quiet down or I'm going to call the police. And they, you know, that that's kind of how that just panned out. But that's the level of fighting and violence that they would go to that like people that are in a loud bar downstairs can still hear what's going on. And um, that would just be a terrible thing to have a fight like that with someone who ends up being found dead the next day because, yeah, you're going to be like top, you know, suspect in the police's eyes. You know, Kiri seemed like she was really cooperative, though, in this investigation, kind of let them do their thing. And they were able to figure it out, you know, and kind of put things together. But yeah, oh my gosh, that would be really terrible for her for a lot of reasons. Yeah. And Kiri even saying, you know, or Michelle wanting Kiri to call so badly to you know, call the police and say she's missing and then go look here and then, oh, look in the car. Is her body there? Wait, look again. Maybe her body's there. They kind of pointed their fingers at themselves too. You know, there was some stuff where it was like you were pushing it a little bit hard here. But if you were concerned, I can see where that would happen and it would stink to have a coincidence be like, oh yeah, she's always here. And then you go there and she's there. But man, this was this was a one where I would say it would really relied on a lot of actual physical evidence to even be able to charge them because it really could be multiple people in this story. Yeah, definitely a fascinating story with a lot of fascinating dynamics going on. Okay, Melissa, we're going to turn the page and go to last thing before we go. Um, It is not quite the first week of the month because we are still in March and I'm pretty sure this episode is coming out at a date that is still in March. It correct? is. Yes, the 31st. The 31st. Okay. Uh, but we're going to go ahead and do our hero segment this week instead of next week because, as Melissa said, we want to talk about Tiger King next week. I still have to finish it. I've watched a little bit of it, but I still need to finish it up and uh, get caught up on all that. So we are going to um, do hero this week, and then we will do Tiger King next week, and we'll be back on track after that. Yeah. It gives you guys time to watch it. If you haven't watched it, Netflix should be like, telling you to watch it every day multiple times a day and if you haven't quite hit the play button trust us you need to push the play button you will not regret it so we have our hero email today from Erin Marr and she writes hello moms I wanted to write in and tell you about my hero my OBGYN Katie Katie quite literally saved mine and my daughter's lives in May of 2016 I was 32 years old and breastfeeding my two and a half year old son I wasn't pregnant yet and I found a lump in my breast I spent the next two months begging doctors to listen. Within that time, I became pregnant. This is where Katie enters my story. After becoming pregnant, I went to a completely new OB in an entirely different state for help. I met her and told her about the lump. She listened. Someone finally listened. She gave me the referral to the breast care center, one ultrasound, one biopsy, and two weeks later, Katie sat me down and told me that I had breast cancer. She then told me that I had two appointments the very next day with an oncologist and a surgical oncologist. She had done all the research and referrals for me and set everything up so I didn't have to stress. I went on to receive five rounds of chemo while pregnant, gave birth, got six more rounds of harder chemo, 33 rounds of radiation, and six more months of oral chemo. Because of Katie, I am here almost four years later with a beautiful daughter and a beautiful life worth living, all thanks to Katie. 
She's my hero. Not only did she save my life, but now implemented a new policy in her practice to do breast checks for all pregnant patients at their first ultrasound, which wasn't the standard of care before she met me. She told me that if it saves even one other mom, it's worth it. Thank you so much for your consideration. Absolutely love the show. Got to put a little plug in for herself there, Mandy. She said a nice thing, so we'll take that. I'm just kidding. That's an amazing story, Erin. It is oh, an amazing, amazing story. Oh, my gosh. I cannot imagine what a stressful time that must have been in your life, um, being pregnant and having to go through something so scary. Truly makes you feel thankful for the healthcare professionals that we have that catch these things and can help us get through them. And yes, very thankful that you are here and you have your baby and everything is going great for you. Yes. And thank you, by the way, while we're here to all the medical care professionals, people that are working in grocery stores right now, people that are on the front lines. You guys are doing so much and we are sitting at home and we can do things like watch Netflix on Tiger, you know, Tiger King and stuff. And we really do appreciate it so much. You're putting yourself out there for all of our families. And we really appreciate you. So we are done for this week. But before we go, we are going to play the promo for Bloody Murder Podcast. It's super fun. You guys will really like it. Make sure you check it out right after we say goodbye. (laughs) All right, guys. I think that's it for this week. Uh, We will see you next week. Same time, same place. New story. Have a great week. Bye. Is listening to true crime podcasts all the time getting you down, but you just can't stop? Try listening to Bloody Murder. We're an Australian comedy true crime podcast focusing on some of the lesser-known murder cases from Australia and around the globe. We use black comedy as a means to tell horrifying true crime stories. But our humour is respectful and never at the expense of victims or their loved ones. Our episodes cover everything from Australian gangland figures like Chopper Reed to black widows and women who kill disputes between neighbours that turn to murder identity theft killings bushrangers and serial killers you won't have heard covered elsewhere. We get straight into the case with no banter or chit-chat beforehand. That's because the podcast is about true crime, not what we had for lunch. Our fresh, well-researched episodes are released every Monday. Bloody Murder has been nominated for four Australian Podcast Awards. We've been going for over three years now. So we have loads of episodes for you to binge. You can listen to Bloody Murder on Spotify and any of your favourite podcatchers. Thanks so much for listening to the Moms and Murder podcast. Make sure to check back with us next week for a new episode. You can also find us at momsandmurder.com where you can connect with us via social media. Please make sure you subscribe and give us five stars because giving us four stars would be a crime. Thanks so much.